If you could turn to Philippians chapter 3. The burden that we'll hear in the words of the Apostle Paul are our citizenship is not in heaven. And from it, our, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior. Or a paraphrase that I'll be using, this world, this world is not our home. Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And Paul brackets these few verses with appeals to give attention to how the Philippians are walking out their faith. He calls them to imitate Him, to keep their eyes on those walking according to the example that has been set for them. They are urged to stand firm in the Lord. And for good reason. Through tears, He also lets them know that many now walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's letting them know that the situation they currently find themselves in couldn't be more serious. The stakes are high indeed. We need to be careful. Because... From Paul's description, the enemies of the cross whose end is destruction, it doesn't say here that they hate Jesus, that they're trying to kill Paul. Now, Paul has faced that kind of opposition. Actually, he's faced that opposition right here in Philippi in the book of Acts. We read when he had cast the demon out of the slave girl, the fortune teller, how he was beaten, how he was thrown into prison, how he was sought to be destroyed. He has faced that kind of opposition, but... But that's not the kind of hatred of Jesus, of the cross, that Paul is highlighting here. Those aren't the symptoms he gives here for those who walk as enemies of the cross. Instead, it's this. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Now, please understand, believe me, I'm not trying to put a damper on any holiday celebrations. The treats of the season that we enjoy as one who could be accused of having a bigger God than most, this isn't that message. But, 
But I do think what Paul lists here, belly gods and minds set on earthly things, they're everyday and common by design. That is Paul's point. These are things we, we're all susceptible to. Don't we all put energy and effort into making life as comfortable and enjoyable as possible? That isn't just me, is it? No. We all do it. Christ's call to love others as we love ourselves. That, that isn't a command to love myself more. That's a command. It's a recognition to love others to the high standard by which I already love myself. By which I already do that naturally every day. See, I don't have to work at seeking my own interests. I've never had to teach that to any of my daughters, and yet they still find an ability to do that very well on their own. I might not say it quite this way, but honestly, I do all I can to make my existence one of heaven on earth. I want to be as as comfortable, as easy, as pleasurable as possible. And really... This is the bent of every one of us. Whether it's in the material things, the new toy we might be lusting after, the the car, the house, the retirement plan, whether it's in the experiential things, the vacation we've been looking forward to, just the amount and type of peace and quiet we crave. The family life we desire, security, that can come with certain goals. You can fill in the blank. You've heard the expression that someone is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Paul seems to have the opposite concern here. Folks are so earthly minded that they're no earthly good and their end will be destruction. He isn't just saying, don't do that. He's saying, look to the examples you have and stand firm. But much more than just giving moral examples, He gives them the motivation as well. When He says, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Paul is trying here to rouse those that are being lulled to sleep by the comforts of this world. He's reminding them this world is not our home. Our citizenship is somewhere else. We're not home yet. Don't get too comfortable here. I think that could stand alone for many of us in modern day America as a needed warning. How foolish it is to solely focus on this life and the comforts we enjoy when, well, quite frankly, they're just so temporary. Don't we know? Don't we know what is coming? Should we not be preparing for that day? What good is comfort now if our end is destruction? 
And let me just pause and say, if you find yourself in that place this morning, aware that you are in danger of that coming destruction, your, your focus is on the here and the now, well, can I just invite you right now, you can begin in just a moment to tune me out for the next few minutes on this condition that you consider what if what Paul is saying is true? What if your end is destruction by the seeking of your comfort, your pleasure now? Consider that. Weigh that. Don't go any further right now than that thought. And then consider this one. What if God has you here this morning so that your end will not be destruction? Ponder that and then begin to listen again. Now, Paul is writing to the church, so he's not primarily targeting those simply living for the world. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. Certainly Christians who can be tempted by the allure of the world, yes? but also Christians who may be, well, very weary of this world and the troubles it brings. To them, Paul is not seeking to speak a warning, but comfort and hope. What kind of hope? The kind that comes from pointing them to their true citizenship. Citizenship means that you belong. It gives you rights and privileges. Your nation will fight to protect and defend you. No matter where you travel in this world, you always have a home in the place of your citizenship. Citizenship is permanent because this world is temporary. Both the comfort and the suffering that we find here is also temporary. So we see the contrast of the temptation in the earlier verses of making our belly our God with the reality Paul points out here that our bodies will be transformed. That's a reminder that whatever comfort we have in making our belly our God, that's temporary. It doesn't last. So don't put too much emphasis on it. Pay attention to the eternal but the fact that it's only temporary is also a comfort to those who are hurting and suffering because that too is only temporary. When I first felt the stirring of this message on an eternal perspective earlier this year, as I, I mentioned, it, it was in the midst of a lot of change and upheaval in our church in Richmond. Much of that has died down, yet for many... Just the reality is many every Sunday that you come in and you see the empty seats beside you of friends who were once there, it's sad. It's hard. Things aren't the way they used to be. You're going through transitions right now locally. Our family of churches is in a, a season of uncertainty. How do we approach that? Let's face it though, for some of us, any discomfort at church is dwarfed by what's going on in the rest of our lives. Health issues, pain, cancer, 
loss of loved ones. For many, those are the challenges of everyday life. Loss of job, problems with the boss, trouble at school, court dates, custody battles, rebellious child, overbearing parents. You can fill in your own blank. Life happens. There are times when it can seem like nothing but sunshine and butterflies. But then there are other times when it seems that life sneaks up on you and eats your lunch and all you're left with is an empty feeling inside. Can anybody relate to those feelings? As I mentioned, I've recently undergone an unplanned job change, which is, leaves us wondering what the future holds for our family. My wife, Colleen, as I mentioned, struggles with constant back pain, which affects every part of her life and our home. Extended family members in this past year have had serious illnesses, surgeries, court dates, and attempted suicides. Don't get me wrong, there's been plenty of good too. There's been plenty to be thankful for. Weddings, babies, adoptions, the simple pleasures of time with the ones we love, but for us, like some of you, if you were to put a banner over the last year to two, it might read something more like, it's hard, it's tough, and it's fun. Paul was a guy who could relate to challenge, to uncertainty, to affliction, pain, and heartache. If we were to look back earlier in this book, chapter 1, we would see verses 12 through 18, that Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from prison. Not only is he in prison writing this letter, but at the time of his writing, different individuals, rivals, are seeking to agitate him, are seeking to make life difficult for him in his imprisonment by preaching the Gospel, believing this will stir things up for him. A few verses later in 27 through 30, he instructs the Philippians to live godly lives, not fearing their opponents, recognizing Paul has many opponents. The folks here at Philippi have those that are opposing them and the message they are trying to deliver. He continues, for it has been granted to them not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. Paul was familiar with heartache and hardship. Imprisonment, opposition, sickness, conflict, looming loss of his own life and that of his friends. He's a guy who can relate to our struggles and hardships. And quite honestly, ten times more than anything most of us will ever see. That's who's speaking to us in chapter 3. Someone who has been imprisoned beaten, stoned, slandered, and persecuted, yet still had a perspective in it all. How? Well, here is a guy who knew what heavenly citizenship meant. We could read in 2 Corinthians how Paul had been to the third heaven. This phrase here, our citizenship being in heaven, isn't just flowery language to Paul. He had been there. He had visited. In fact, that experience for him was so profound, 2 Corinthians talks about, that he was given a thorn in the flesh because of it, 
so that he would not become conceited. What he saw was so glorious. What he was captured by had for him this temptation to to so consume him that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And he responds a few verses later, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, here's how he responds to seeing the third heaven, to having this thorn, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul experienced in the third heaven was so glorious that he was given a thorn to keep him from being conceited to remind him that his strength was in his weakness. So he was content with the hardships because they reminded him of his weakness and kept him anticipating the glory to come. Could it be? Could it be that God uses similar experiences in our own lives? to point us in a similar way to our true strength. You think that maybe He shows us our weaknesses in order to lift our gaze to Him. Paul knew that this world was temporary. He had seen the next one. He could endure whatever trouble he faced in this life because it brought him closer to being with the Savior. It brought Him closer to His new body. It brought Him closer to the glory that was to come. To live was Christ to Paul. And it, it was better for those that He was serving. But oh, oh, He says, to die? That would be gain for me. That would be the better for me to go and to be with my Lord, to be shed of this present existence and body, and to be with Him in glory. Oh, He had tasted of that glory and He was ruined for anything else. His opponents couldn't steal that away from Him. The threats of death only brought Him closer to home. That's not how it tends to be for you and me, is it? We're more like the twins that one of the twins that Randy Alcorn writes about when he says, Imagine a set of twins having a discussion in their mother's womb. You know one says, There's a whole world out there. Grassy meadows and snowy mountains, splashing streams and waterfalls, skyscrapers and cities and, and people like us, only much bigger playing games like football and baseball and volleyball and going to the beach. Are you crazy? The other twin responds. That's just wishful thinking. Everybody knows there's no life after birth. So it may seem to us about life after death we can have a hard time imagining it's real when 
We've only been here. Here is all we know. But reality isn't restricted by the limits of our ability to understand. Life outside the womb is real, though the child cannot imagine it. Though the child may want to just stay where it is safe and dark and warm, there is a real world just outside. And he is approaching it faster than he knows. Our bodies will be transformed. Paul says, like Christ's glorious body. Now here is a man who saw the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. He knocked him off his horse and he changed his life. I imagine he also had contact with that same Lord in his experience in the third heaven. You can only imagine that it would correlate to what John saw that we read about in the book of Revelation. Now, I don't know exactly what that means for us and our bodies that will be transformed to be like His. But I have a feeling it's better than anything we can imagine. I have a feeling, a hunch, that that there's no way you and I, no matter how hard we try, can out-design God. This whole world will be renewed. Now, that's more of a comfort for some of us this morning than others. When I gave this message in Richmond, I was aware of a couple of individuals in the congregation whose bodies were wasting away, being consumed by cancer. I don't know what the situation is here. What ailments, what struggles, what things different folks are, are, are struggling with. But do you think that, that those listening with cancer riddling their bodies, some other disease wasting away at their flesh, at their mind, do you think they need the same reminder of what is coming than those of us whose worst condition in the last week or two is a little heartburn? No, they're clinging to this hope, to this promise that it doesn't end here. The best is yet to come. Sadly, honestly, it can take a good scare for many of us. A close call to get tuned in to what really matters. I know this from my own life. I can be lulled into enough of a comfort zone that I have to force myself to remember that it gets better than this. It gets a whole lot better than this. I lose sight of that constantly. My wife generally doesn't have to force herself to remember that fact. Believers in the Sudan or Cuba probably don't need to force themselves to remember that whatever they are going through is not the end of the story. 
Scripture makes clear that compared to eternity, whatever we are subjected to in this life, it's only light and momentary trouble. Now that's not to in any way make light of it. It's very real. It's very hard in the moments that we endure it. But it does help us place it into perspective. When we compare it to eternity, to what we will enjoy with our Savior forever, it's a whisper. It will vanish. It pales utterly in comparison. A day is coming when there will be no more struggle against sin. There will be no more disease or sickness or pain. No more leukemia or Alzheimer's. There will be no more persecution or injustice. There will be no more goodbyes or tear-filled regrets. There will be no more separation between us and the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. That's only possible because we have a Savior coming from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ, our pain and suffering are not eternal because the Eternal One took our pain and our suffering and what we rightly deserved as the consequences for our sin and rebellion against Him. And He took that upon Himself at Calvary. We can persevere in our present trials because Jesus made sure they weren't permanent ones. And that also means that just as reality isn't restricted by our ability to understand, it likewise isn't restricted by our ability or failure to make it happen. Paul doesn't say that our citizenship will be in heaven. doesn't say it might be in heaven. He says that it is in heaven. It's a done deal. For those in Christ, our future is sure. Our fate is already decided. We may still be filling out the answers on our test books, but the reality is that the grade is already recorded in His book. And it's in ink. Actually, it's probably in stone. It's permanent. There's no guessing. There's no erasing. There's no going back. Now, we're still awaiting a Savior from heaven. So, many hopes and longings in this life, well, they will be incomplete. They will be unfulfilled. But the end result is not in jeopardy. The end result is not in question because our Savior has secured it. Verse 21 says, by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. There is no lack of power in the One who has gained it for us. It is secure. He has already obtained it for us. The price has already been paid. The debt has already been canceled but we're not yet enjoying all its benefits. So Paul is saying, wait. Wait for what is sure to come. Don't get too comfortable here. The best is on its way. 
live in such a way that shows we're anticipating that better day rather than being satisfied with or jaded by this current one. Now here's a a potential stumbling block. God has created us with a sense, a longing for our true home. We desire the good and the beautiful and the eternal. We just won't see all their fulfillment in this lifetime. That doesn't mean they won't be fulfilled. God has made us with these deep longings precisely that we might see that something is missing. That something is not the way it is supposed to be. All is not right with this world. The futility we observe really is wrong. It really is out of place. It really doesn't belong here. The rending of heart and body, it points us to a completion that only comes in Jesus Christ. Would would we even see the need for a Savior without the brokenness of this world and of our individual lives that sin produces? Hopelessness is what is experienced when when we see and experience brokenness apart from the promise and reality of God's saving Son. There is a holy frustration that God has built into this present world. Ever since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the garden, things are simply not the way they were meant to be. If you don't understand this book, to be trustworthy and true from the very first pages, you'll never be able to make sense of this world. But if we see the reality that from the introduction of sin, work, life, relationships, they're hard. They're often painful. We see suffering and futility. They are real. Not because God delights or has any pleasure from our suffering, but because He wants us to remember that this is not the way things were meant to be. Creation itself is said to be groaning, awaiting its deliverance from the futility it has been subjected to. And since the introduction of that futility, only one source of hope has ever been named. Ever since man was expelled from the garden, we've been awaiting. Awaiting a Savior. Awaiting for a Savior doesn't mean that deliverance is in doubt, only that it isn't here fully yet. Oh, He he did come. He did come and accomplish the work that was necessary for our deliverance. That's what we celebrate. That's what we've sung about this morning. This coming. He did come. He accomplished what needs to be accomplished, yet He went back and said He's coming to return, this time triumphant, to complete the good work that He has begun. Paul Tripp writes about waiting. Waiting is not an interruption of God's plan. It is His plan. Waiting is meant to remind you that you live between the already and the not yet. Yes, there are many, many things for which to be thankful in this life. 
But this place is not your final home. You are in a temporary dwelling, in a temporary location. The hardships of your present life speak clearly. This is not the final destination. Waiting is meant to produce in you a God-honoring dissatisfaction with the status quo. Waiting is meant to make you hungry, to produce in you a longing. For what? To be home. Home with your Lord forever. Home where sin is no more. Home in a world that has been made completely new. As you wait, keep telling yourself, this is not my final destination. This world is not my home. We wait not because the future is unsure, but because it is sure. We wait because the One who promised it is trustworthy and true and is able to subject all things to Himself. It is coming. It will happen. So we wait with anticipation and confidence, not indifference or despair. If our future is certain, and it is, then it also means that our present has a purpose. If we do as Paul says here and imitate him, then we can't escape the fact that trouble or not, if we're not home yet, we're on a mission. Paul is in prison. He is writing this letter from prison to strengthen this church. As he's there, rivals are trying to agitate him through their preaching, but frankly, he's just happy that the gospel is being preached. Paul's thorn in the flesh, we see it as fueling his ministry. The question for us is, what will, our, what will our thorns do? What will they produce? When Jesus ascended, He made it clear that the time between when He left and when He returned was for His message and mission to advance, to go forward. It was a time for disciples to be made. Now, as we read through this book and as we look at our own histories, we recognize, I think strikingly, how the history of the church is not one of God using perfect people. It's one of God using imperfect people in imperfect circumstances for His perfect plans and mission. The church just founded. Believers being added to daily. Growing into the thousands. Growing by leaps and bounds in Jerusalem, we read. Until Stephen was martyred. And then the church was scattered. What happened next? Well, the Gospel went forth into all these outlying areas. It was spread to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey having a sharp dispute over the inclusion of John Mark. But what happens next is that now two missionary journeys are going forward with churches being planted and strengthened through opposition and disputes. The church was forced to clarify the Gospel and to ultimately be strengthened 
Are our own circumstances always or, well, ever those of our own choosing or preference? No. Just as I'm sure Paul and Barnabas would have rather had a do-over on the whole dispute thing, the reality is that God can still use us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. God is still on His throne and His mission will advance. Even in pain, in conflict, and difficulty, His kingdom marches on and grows. So we have choices. We have choices of how we will see this world and our place in it. We can look longingly at the past or we can marvel at our future. We can feel self-pity in our current suffering we can seek to compel those that are around us whose end is currently destruction. We can occupy our minds with earthly things. Or we can set our gaze on our Savior and the eternal home He is preparing for us. Scripture says that God took six days to make the heavens and the earth. And it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus said, He was going to prepare a place for us. Well, if that time difference is any indication of what He's making, can't wait to get there and see what He's got planned. But, but I have, well, I have an inkling that that time difference owes less to how long it takes for Him to prepare a place for us than it does for Him to prepare us for that place. He is constantly reforming His church, ever working to cleanse and purify His bride to be without blemish or spot. So we need to lift our eyes to our true home and the One who purchased it for us. Hold fast. Stand firm. Press on. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. Let's pray together.